Church, if you'll please open your Bibles once again to the book of Romans. This morning, we'll turn our attention to the next statement in Paul's proclamation of gospel boldness. That's what we looked at last week in verses 16 and 17. In this section, the revealed wrath of God in the gospel takes center stage. God's wrath, it seems, is an increasingly less talked about truth. Our goal as the people of God, as His church here at Southside, is not to suppress or shrink away from truth, but to be transformed by the truth of God's Word. And my aim this morning is to shine a bright light on the truth that it may shine a bright light into our hearts and we may be transformed by it. The truth before us this morning is, once again, God's wrath. And by thoroughly looking into the reflecting pool of God's wrath, I want us as a church to be transformed in these particular ways. I have three particular ways that I want us to be transformed by truth this morning. The first, I want us to be moved to a profound humility and repentance. And that's all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. I want all of us to be moved to a profound humility and repentance. Number two, I want us to be moved to overwhelming praise to the glory of God as revealed in His wrath. And that statement might seem inquisitive to you at first. It might seem contradictory depending on how you've viewed God's wrath in the past. But my prayer is that as you see it revealed in His Word this morning, that all of us would be overwhelmed to the praise of the glory of God as revealed in His wrath. And then number three, I want us to be completely broken at the grace of God as revealed in the cross of Christ. I'll ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's Word. As we read our text for this morning, which is a sole verse, a standalone verse, here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you this morning, I pray, God, that we would see the revealed wrath which you have shown us in your word and in your gospel. That we would see the light that it shines on our own sinful hearts And that you would move us, God, to a profound humility and repentance. That you would keep us in that place. That you would bind us in that place, always before you, in humility and repentance. God, I pray that you would move us to overwhelming praise of your glory that we would see this morning as revealed in your word uh, and revealed in this sole verse that you move our feet in missions according to what we see here in your gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would completely break us at your grace as revealed in the cross of Christ. Transform us by your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So leading into today's text, verses 16 and 17 lay the groundwork. And we covered those thoroughly last week. The power of God for salvation is revealed, communicated, and proclaimed through the gospel. The message of our sinfulness and total unjustified standing before God and God's gracious actions to make us justified from faith for faith in Christ. Verses 16 and 17 are the very well-known institutions 
of Romans 1. But, believe it or not, they are incomplete without today's text. Without verse 18, how do we know the gospel is good? How do we know it as good news? And what was, what was the bad news state that we were living in in which that news was so sweet and good? How do we know why salvation is needed? Why does the revealed righteousness of God play a part in the gospel? And how does that work? Verse 18 helps all of this come into perspective. And that's what we see with that word that we've seen repeatedly through this section, just here in chapter 1 alone. That first word, for. So building upon what we've seen prior, that we are not to be ashamed of the gospel, that it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, and that therefore because of that, in this gospel, this good news, the righteousness of God, so the holiness, the utter holiness of God is revealed from faith for faith, beginning with faith and ending with faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, we've still, without verse 18, yet to see what is our state? Like, how do, we, how do we get to where we can be made righteous by this faith? And where does this faith come from? And why, why do we need this good news? And that's where we start with this first portion of our verse for today. For the wrath of God is revealed. The wrath of God is is revealed. There is a continual effort by many to suppress the wrath of God in the gospel. And maybe you know exactly what I mean when I say that. And maybe you're kind of like, what is that? You know, who's, who's suppressing it? How do, they, how do they go about doing that? There's a litany of popular gospels out there that would have us paint a portrait of God that emphasizes all of his attributes of love, grace and faithfulness while even adding attributes that we don't see displayed in scripture such as tolerance of sin and acceptance of sin do not mistake god's forbearance displayed throughout scripture as if it were a shifting standard toward sin you see, church, the true gospel reveals the wrath of God for the glory of God to be made known. Why mention God's wrath in the midst of a section in which we're talking about the unashamedness, the gospel boldness that we are to live with and the power of God for salvation? As we'll see, it's necessary to know verse 18 so we can understand salvation from what? But the true gospel reveals the wrath of God for the glory of God to be made known. And here's why I make that a two-part statement and how I think we see this across Scripture. There is no shortage of people who are more than willing to reveal the wrath of God against specific sins. You've probably interacted with people like this before. Maybe you were at one point in a stage like this in your own spiritual journey in which you could see clearly the wrath of God against sin, but it was so evident God's wrath against specific sins and almost always specific sins that do not include us, right? But there's no shortage of people who are more than willing to reveal the wrath of God against specific sins, specific people, or specific groups. And their entire goal and desire of doing so is to justify and self-affirm their own ungodliness. God has revealed his own wrath in the gospel, not simply for the purpose of saying, I am God, feel my wrath, but for the purpose of saying, therefore, O man, Repent and believe. We cannot separate verse 18 from what we read in verses 16 through 17. This gospel for which we are unashamed is the power of God for salvation. And if we believe that, then we must believe that for this reason, the wrath of God has been revealed. Revealed. 
that he might be made known by his standard for righteousness, which reveals a needed change in the hearts of all mankind. So simultaneously, those on the left that would subvert and attempt to extinguish the wrath of God are challenged to its reality in this verse. And those to the extreme right that would do nothing but overemphasize God's wrath at the expense of his mercy and grace are called to realize the reason for his revealed wrath. We see time and again throughout the Old Testament that God reveals his wrath that mercy may be extended and that he would get the greater glory. We see this throughout all of Scripture. That God reveals his wrath, that mercy may be extended, and he gets the greater glory for that. Now, going back to verse 17, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. That righteousness is not inactive. God's righteousness demands something of his people, especially in our fallen state. The Lord sets the standard in the Old Testament. You shall be holy for I am holy. This is what I mean by God's righteousness demands something of his people. We read this in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. Of course, Leviticus, the expounding of the law on what it looks like and how it it intertwines with the, the social aspect of life and the religious aspect of life and the communal aspect of life. Like, how does God's law intertwine with every little piece of life? That's Leviticus. What does it cost for us to be made clean before a righteous, just, and holy God? That's Leviticus. In Leviticus 11.45, we read the Lord saying this to his people. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, the context there of chapter 11 is even more astonishing than just the statement standing alone by itself. The context there of chapter 11 comes in the wake of chapter 10. I know you can count, but in chapter 10, we read of Nadab and Abihu, who are consumed instantly by the just judgment of God for having transgressed his holiness and having partaken in the righteous rituals in a very unworthy manner. And so in the wake of that, the Lord reminds his people not only what he's done to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, but that for this purpose, he is their Lord and God, and therefore be holy for I am holy. We go on to read later in Leviticus 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So from the onset, holiness has been a distinguishing characteristic and command for the people of God. Holiness is a distinguishing characteristic and command for the people of God. Why? Because he is holy and we were created for the purpose of reflecting that. You shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples. So there we have that holiness therefore has this implied means of separation from the clean and unclean. Thus the title of saints from verse 7 here in Romans 1 isn't just a cute moniker for us as the people of God. It's not just a cute little nickname, saints. It's a standard. And a standard that we constantly fall short of on our own. If we don't understand the holiness of God, we can't grasp the wrath of God. And I'm convinced that one of the main reasons why so many people, even self-proclaiming Christians, struggle with the idea of God's wrath is because they have such a little view of God's holiness. That's the reality. 
that if we truly even grasp a little minutia of God's holiness, we can begin to understand His just wrath. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 99. I read this earlier this week, or was read this to me, as I was gathered with a group of pastors, a pastor by the name of Matt Boswell, who's an incredible Christian music artist as well, read this to us in context of preparing us for our worship that evening, and I couldn't help but include it in my sermon after reading it along with that group of pastors. Here in Psalm 99, we read, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. If we want to understand God's wrath, we have to understand our God. And he is holy. We see this throughout Scripture, plainly stated for us, sometimes explicitly stated, oftentimes implicitly displayed. I briefly outlined this a little bit last week, but we see this in the separation of clean and unclean, holy and unholy. In the garden, in the wake of the fall, what happens to Adam and Eve? They are banished from the garden, separated. They're no longer allowed to partake in that grace of being in the garden, of being in right relationship with God. Why? Because they are sinners. Mount Sinai, very vividly described there in Psalm 99. What do we see? The presence of the Lord settles on the mountain. Only Moses is allowed to go up to commune with God, to communicate with God, and to be given the law. The people are explicitly told to stay down the mountain, to not even step foot on the mountain, lest they perish. Why? Because God's holiness highlights our unrighteousness and shows the chasm that lays between us. This goes on to be physically represented for us in the tabernacle and the temple. We see there are degrees of separation. There are uh, steps that must be gone through as you walk through the tabernacle process, as you walk through the temple process. Even the high priest must go through these things to be made clean so that they may worship God properly. This is what has to happen for unrighteous man to be made right and to be able to worship at the footstool of a just and completely holy God. God's wrath against sin is not simply a cause and effect, but rather a consistent judgment of sin in accordance with his good character. The standard for God's wrath is his own holiness. The purpose of creating man in his own image was to give them the command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The purpose of which was to fill his good creation with what? Perfect reflections of his good character. Now, in the fall, that image is distorted and broken. Meaning that in our sinfulness, we fill the earth with what? 
distorted and broken images of God's character. So God's completely righteous character cannot stand for that. Therefore, he reveals his wrath for the purpose of extending mercy to those while he cho- whom he chooses that we, we may be made new. We go on to the next statement, part of our verse here in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Again, take note of that, that separation there. You see that plainly. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let the all-encompassing nature of this statement overwhelm us. The revealed wrath of God brings to bear an ultimate accountability against sin. And this too is one of the reasons why we shy away from it. It's because none of us like accountability. And that's exactly why we need it. Now we'll boast of and we'll say that we desire and that we want to see amongst ourselves biblical accountability, biblical community, but when it comes time to be the one that's held to account, we don't like it. And that's exactly why we need it. One of the graces of God we often take for granted is that he has revealed his wrath. It's been revealed. That itself is a grace. It's not a shadowy, secretive thing. He's openly revealed his wrath in his word, that it may be made known, that man may act in accordance with that reality. That is a grace of God. The revealed wrath of God is itself a grace. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we don't just simply deserve to know of his wrath. We deserve to receive it. So giving us the knowledge of it is what? It's grace. Rather than simply giving it to those who deserve it, which is us, he makes it known to us. I pray that that sinks in because of this truth. We are saved by God and from God. Notice again how verse 18 completes the thought of verses 16 through 17. In verses 16 through 17, we see a clear call to boldness for the gospel that in it we see the revealed righteousness of God. Now, we'll read that, and, and as Christians, as modern-day believers, we'll, I'm afraid we'll just skip over it. That righteousness revealed in God should terrify us because of what we read here in verse 18. It reveals God's righteousness and it reveals the faith that is required and the power to save and it reveals that none of that is in us. But again, be saved from what or whom? And the unequivocal answer of verse 18 is we are saved from God's wrath against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, Because of this revealed righteousness of God, we now see the standard and realize we don't meet up to it on our own. I was having a conversation, I think it was a couple of Wednesday nights ago, with Cody Davis and Aaron Bishop. It was after one of uh, Aaron's sessions uh, on our apologetics series, and we were talking about the reality uh, that the gospel reveals and it's a reality that many of us don't consider and, and think, uh, don't think of often. And that's that our sinful condition existed before the incarnation. Our sinful state, our unrighteousness and ungodliness against which the wrath of God has been revealed existed before Christ came to pay the price for those sins. Now, what do, what do we mean by that? Our sinful state was inherited from our first father, Adam. 
which means people do not go to hell for not believing in Jesus. Now, that statement on the surface sounds salacious and it sounds as if it's for for shock value. But here's what I intend to communicate with it and here's why it is true. People go to hell because they are under the just judgment of God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is only through believing in Christ that we can realize our unrighteousness, repent of it, and be in right relationship with him. Our unrighteousness is inherent. That is, that our unrighteousness is not something that happens to us, but rather it's naturally how we are. We are not victims of ungodliness and unrighteousness. We are the perpetrators. We are born not just ungodly, but anti-God. Not just unrighteous, but anti-righteous. That means we firmly stand against God and we firmly stand against his standard in and of ourselves. The gospel is the great equalizer because in it we see that we are all equally fallen and deserving of God's wrath. And this is borne out in what our unrighteousness and ungodliness does within us. This is even better explained as we continue in this verse. Take note of how it also naturally suppresses the truth. What does our aggressively ungodly and unrighteous nature do within us? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, Paul goes on to expound in the proceeding verses after this on what exactly that looks like. And I'll expound on it a bit here, but we'll get even more in-depth on it next week. But what truth, what truth does our unrighteousness suppress within us? I want to give you just five examples of the truths that our own unrighteousness naturally, naturally suppresses within us. And I pray that you see the reality of these in your own life as I read them. Because we are all guilty of this suppression of truth. Five truths naturally suppressed by our own unrighteousness. The truth of God's creative work and good character. You want to know the reason for the rise of atheism since the Enlightenment period, the continued suppression of the truth? This has been entrenched in us since the fall. Satan distorts God's word in his temptation of Eve and questions God's goodness. Eve misquotes God's word back to the serpent, but also does not correct the questioning of God's goodness and character. This is still very present in our flesh, and we need to mark it and realize it. Number two, the truth of the guilt of sin being on us and no one else. The truth of the guilt of our own sin being on us and on no one else. We by nature want to deflect blame. We by nature want to deflect whose fault it is. You see this in your own life in simple ways when you're confronted with different things. But realize this in your sinfulness. This is the reason for all manner of attempted justification that we see in our world. We feel the weight of condemnation because God has written a moral law on our hearts that cannot be whitewashed or ignored. But our flesh will go all out to deflect our transgression by attempting to come up with every justification and rationalization possible to defer that guilt away from us and towards anyone or anything else. We saw this once again in the fall with Adam. The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. So it's not only the woman's fault, it's God's fault for giving him the woman. Mark this in your own life and be aware of it that you may combat it with the truth of God's word. Number three, the truth of God's sovereignty. 
Why do the doctrines of grace offend us? Why is it difficult for our human brain to wrestle with it at times? The suppression of truth. Why do we so badly want to impose our own sovereignty in all things? Because by our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Number four, the truth of God's holiness and righteousness. We've addressed this one thoroughly this morning, but it bears repeating. For the sake of our own guilt being satisfied, our flesh suppresses the truth of just how holy and righteous our God is. It shows in how flippantly we approach this time sometimes on Sunday mornings. It shows in how flippantly we approach God's word in our own study of it. It shows in how flippantly we approach his call for us to preach the gospel in missions. We suppress the truth of God's holiness and righteousness, and we need to mark that in our lives and be rid of it. Number five, and this really could be the overarching one, but we suppress the truth of God's word. Psalm 119, famous, of course, for being the longest chapter in the Bible and for being entirely about God's word. But in addition to being entirely about God's word, it reveals the fallenness of the human heart. I want you to either turn there or you can turn your attention to the screen as it'll be right there. But I want to read you just a few verses from just the beginning of Psalm 119 to see what I'm talking about. How does it reveal the truth of God's word, the faithfulness of God's word, the goodness of God's word, and also the fallenness of the human heart. Here's how. Psalm 119, picking up in verse four. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Why say that? Why add that? part. Why not just say that you've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently? Why have to say, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes? Because our ways are never steadfast in keeping his statutes. Verse 6, then I shall not be put to shame having fixed, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Meaning our hearts need to be taught his righteous rules. They need to be preached to us constantly from within ourselves and from outside of ourselves. Continue down to verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. And you think, oh, that sounds good. Run a good, good path there. What's the follow-up? Let me not wander from your commandments. Why add that part? Because we constantly stray and wander from his commandments. Verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Meaning what? The temptation, the reality of sin is ever present. So it needs to be ever battled. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Teach them to me. Preach them to me. Bury them deep within my heart so that when that temptation comes and the sinful urges come and the flesh attempts to suppress the truth, I am constantly shoving my face in here because my face does not want to be here. I'm constantly preaching this truth to my heart because my heart doesn't want to believe it. Why? Because my heart eagerly, willingly, naturally suppresses the truth. Our flesh does not want to acknowledge, know, or understand any of these things naturally because our flesh naturally suppresses the truth. This is the reason for all the litany of world religions, agnosticism, atheism, you name it. We feel the weight of our unrighteousness. This causes man to seek out justification wherever we can find it other than God, thereby suppressing the truth. I've made the statement before that the pastor's family is the, the low-hanging fruit of uh, sermon analogies. 
But sometimes when you're as short as me, you have to reach all, the, the low-hanging fruits all you can reach. So, my daughter, bless her, constantly lets me know that I preach too long. Even when I preach short, I don't, you know, like I don't get it. It's constantly, Daddy, can you preach short today? Can it be a short preach today? That's the constant question. But do you know why that's her desire naturally? Suppression of truth. Now, some may ruffle their justification feathers and say, that's too extreme. She's just a child. But in all of our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Why have you found it so hard to stay focused this morning? Why did you zone out in Sunday school? Why were you tempted to skip this morning? Why don't you read your Bible daily? Why are your prayers cold and hearts weary? It's the suppression of truth. The suppression of truth is born out in our idolatry, primarily in the idolatry of ourselves. And this will be Paul's focus moving on from verse 18, that God's wrath is revealed in our idolatry and what that looks like. And we'll get to that next week. But in our ungodliness, we have denied the existence and character of God. We were created in the image of God for the glory of God to multiply his good image across creation. And in our fallenness, what do we multiply? A distorted image of God that would besmirch his good character, dishonor his name, and deny his creative work. Think about all of our acts in the flesh and what they say of God. A few months back, I made the point that our anxieties say that God is not good. And that point has really stuck with me and continued to convict me ever since then. And you may often hear me say this statement in response to any number of things, but the Lord is good. I say it a lot. And maybe you've thought to yourself, like, why does he say that so much? Why is he so repetitive about that? It's because I'm not just wanting to remind you of that truth, but I'm preaching that truth to myself because my flesh wants to suppress that truth. The only thing that unrighteous man can produce is unrighteousness. So what hope do we have against such a wrath? What hope do we have against such a weight of just judgment? What hope do we have while living in such an unrighteous state? What hope do we have against such the firm and aggressive suppression of truth? The answer is simple. Within ourselves, we have no hope. The only hope we have is that of which we sang of just a little while ago. All I have is Christ. The only hope we have is that our utter unrighteousness would be exchanged for the righteousness of someone else. That the righteousness of one who lived perfect according to the law would be imputed to us by means of atoning sacrifice. Don't be intimidated by that word imputed. When you hear that word imputed, think exchange. We call it the great exchange. That's the only hope for the just wrath of God passing over sinful man. The cross perfectly displays the righteousness of God as revealed in the wrath of God so that the power of God for salvation might be made known. So perhaps at this point you felt crushed, weighted down. This is where I want you to see the turn that we can rejoice in the glory of God, in the wrath of God. The cross perfectly displays God's wrath being poured out, leading to the power of God and salvation in this way. And I'll read for you from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, again, for the sake of those who are what? Perpetually ungodly and unrighteous. 
for the sake of those who in our unrighteousness have perpetually suppressed the truth. Back to 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is the ultimate portrait of the revealed righteous wrath of God. So when you see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, here's what the gospel does. On first impact, it says, wow, that wrath is against me. But then it instantly defers that to where? To the cross. It makes you realize that that wrath was against you. But in Christ. He took on that wrath, that revealed wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He took it upon himself willingly. The cross is the ultimate portrait of the revealed righteous wrath of God against all of our unrighteousness and the redemption of our souls through the imputed righteousness of Christ. At the cross, we see how the gospel reveals the wrath of God in the most gracious and beautiful way possible. And I want to show us, though, three ways, three folds in which God's wrath has been revealed. So if you've been confused at this point, you're trying to rack your brain for how the wrath of God is revealed in the gospel of God's goodness and grace, then maybe this will clarify it for you. Again, the ultimate place where the wrath of God and the grace of God have been perfectly and simultaneously displayed for you and for me is the cross of Christ. It's where you perfectly see the display of God's grace and wrath merged is at the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays this. We read from Luke twenty-two forty-two: Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Maybe you're wondering why for the second Sunday in a row the Lord's Supper elements are laying in front of you. And it'll be clear here in this portion of the sermon. So Jesus prays that God would remove this cup from him. Is this cup some new poetic device that we haven't seen before? No. In Matthew's gospel, we see the sons of Zebedee come to him and ask Jesus to sit at his right hand when he's ascended to the throne. And Jesus answered them in Matthew 20, verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So there we see it again in both gospel accounts in different instances. One hand, Jesus is praying that God would remove this cup from him. And another, we have two sons asking to, to be with Jesus elevated to status and Jesus asked them are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink so where do we see where else do we see this imagery of the cup as I said it's not a new poetic device if you look in Isaiah chapter 51 of course, the context of Isaiah is the Babylonian exile, God's judgment against his people for their ungodliness and unrighteousness. Isaiah, communicating the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord, says this, Wake yourself up, Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. He goes on in verse 22 of Isaiah 51 to say, Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. So here we have God saying that he is pouring out this cup of wrath on his people and that he is the one who takes this cup of wrath. Again, the revealed wrath of God. God reveals his wrath often for the sake of extending mercy that his name may be greater glorified. Where else do we see this cup? Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 16. Thus the Lord, again, context of the Babylonian exile. 
Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So this is a serious cup, this imagery used. It is the cup of God's wrath poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this is the cup that Jesus is presented with in the garden. This is the cup that Jesus clearly states to the sons of Zebedee that he will drink and asks, are they able to drink it? In Jesus, we get the, the perfect tapestry of God's wrath and grace married together. Because on the cross, we see both the cost of righteousness revealed, that is what it costs to make us righteous, and the cost of God's wrath coming against unrighteousness. And what happens there? The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us and our filthy unrighteousness is imputed to him. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath that we might drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood. So what are the three folds in which the wrath of God is revealed? We see the past wrath of God on the Son. That's for us as this present-day church, right? The past wrath of God revealed on the Son. Here we see that the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ so that all who believe may taste the power of God for salvation. We also see the present wrath of judgment. That's how it's used and discussed there in the prophets as it was a very present and real wrath being showed against the judgment of their ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Paul expounds upon that present wrath as he goes on from verse 18. So we will get to that in the days ahead. But we read this uh, same reference to the same cup all the way in Job. If you've been following along in our reading plan for this year, which is strictly chronological, you realize that we read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the primeval narratives, right? And then we read what? Job, which shows how far back Job goes, right? So this is how far back we see this reference to the cup. Job 21, 20, let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. The ever Increasing suppression of truth of God's word is a symptom of the increasing unrighteousness of our age and of God's wrath against it. That God has handed us over, handed our age over to its idolatry. So we see the past wrath revealed being poured out of the sun in the gospel. We see the present wrath of judgment that it's still a reality And we see the future wrath at the end of days. Because here's what I want everyone to hear, especially if you are in this room and you have not trusted in Christ. I want you to know that this wrath is a present and future reality. Because the cross is a foretaste of what awaits those who do not submit to it. If the cross reveals the wrath of God and the grace of God for those who believe, it also reveals the wrath of God coming against those who don't. We read this later on in Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 12. For thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? Saying this to the nation of Edom. You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. The revealed wrath of God greater reveals the unconditional electing love of God. Outside the complete work of the triune God in salvation, there is no hope for man who by our unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore, it is only by God's choosing to shine his love on us in Christ that the truth of his word can pierce these hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. This is why the wrath of God should move us to an ever-increasing state of astonishment at the grace of God to save us in Christ. Because God has revealed his wrath graciously 
that we may see it, know it, and respond to it against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So God's revealed wrath and the revealed righteousness of God shine brightly on our unrighteousness, showing how often we suppress the truth. And this is beautifully displayed in the cross of Christ and the gospel of God. And that is why it's good news that all you or I have is Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you for the glory of the cross where your grace and wrath were perfectly merged and revealed in the cross of Christ to make known to us, to bring about belief in our unrighteous and ungodly hearts. So Lord, again, I pray that you would help us to be moved to a profound humility and repentance at this reality. Lord, move us to an overwhelming praise to your glory as revealed in your wrath. And Lord, I pray that we would leave this place humbled and broken at your grace revealed in the cross of Christ and what that means for us who cling to it. I also pray, Lord, that all those who do not trust in your cross would see your righteousness revealed, would see your wrath revealed and be moved by your power unto salvation in your gospel. And finally, Lord, let us live unashamed of these truths that we may boldly proclaim it until you come again. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.